You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Uh, well, good morning, and um, we're glad you're here. If you're a visitor, welcome for the first time. If you're always here, we're glad. Um, this is one of those Sundays where I always say congratulations on having a real job that keeps you in Waco and doesn't let you travel when everybody else gets to you. Uh, there's, there's a blessing behind every curse. You just got to look for it. So, uh, hey, thanks to everybody who came to the, the Love Feast. That was so much fun. And um, I, th- I thought it was great. Hopefully that kicks off your turkey eating season. And um, good things to come continually for you in terms of um, digestion and whatnot this week. So, uh, okay, it is Christ the King Sunday. Um, this, if you are unfamiliar with the church calendar, this is our New Year's Eve. Uh, we stand in the shoes of Israel and that we begin our journey again and we wait in this period of anticipating Jesus who has been promised to come, but we live you know, vicariously, especially through that period, two, 300 years before Jesus shows up that felt like the, the voice of God, especially reflected in our Bibles chronologically, is absent. And so we are uh, a, a weary world on the precipice of hope, the thrill of hope, looking to rejoice. Um, pragmatically, this means we're getting to transition from year B to C in the lectionary. Um, and as New Year's is, Christ the King Sunday is a moment when we slow down to, to reflect. But instead of, like, st- uh, instead of starting like a diet or a, a new exercise regime or maybe like a, um, a budget or something that you'll restart again in Lent under the guise of spiritual practice, uh, we're called to reflect by asking really just one question. And that question on this Sunday that we ask is, is in fact Jesus King? Um, we've spent the year moving through the life of Jesus, starting as a baby in Christmas, and then in the season of Epiphany, Jesus was unveiled to us as the light of the world, and then we stepped back into the, the gloominess, the darkness of Lent, and prepared ourselves for the Easter season, and then we moved through Easter in a spirit of celebration. We lit our hair on fire and Pentecost, and then we entered ordinary time, which is really my favorite, because this is the season where we get to practice our discipleship, practice wearing the commands and the challenges that Jesus throws our way. Um, and so this is what this looked like. I was just thinking through the year. In the early part of the summer, we moved through Mark. And I got antsy, and so against my better judgment, I preached texts like Song of Solomon. We talked about sex. Proverbs 31, we talked about the role of women. Uh, we talked about King David and how his story is actually pretty complicated in light of the Me Too movement. Um, the HR team at this point hadn't called for my job, so I kept going. I preached on divorce, and then preached from Ruth, talked, talked about learning to love bitterness. Uh, most of the time, I stick with the Gospels, but probably because I spent too much time on TikTok this year, I was feeling emboldened to say wilder things. And so what did we learn this year? We learned that candid, healthy conversations about sex makes our lives better and can point us towards God. We learned that the suppression of women is misunderstood and outdated. We learned that biblical heroes like David have ugly parts of their story that need to be reckoned with. We learned that divorced people have lives that are redeemed and vibrant. We learned that love makes suffering choices, and this is what we do again. We rehearse the story of Jesus, and we wear these things, and we make discoveries. Um, And so this is what we do all year. We ingest these images and these features of the kingdom. And then on this day, we're again asked a simple question. Now that you know the nature of this kingdom, do you want to buy in? Is Jesus, in fact, your king? Uh, Let's talk about choices for a second, because I suppose we're presented with one this morning. Um, I really don't like conflict. And because of that, I can put myself in some really uncomfortable positions. For example, this is very diabolical. A few years ago, I had to go to my children's parent-teacher's conferences and I don't know how yours work, but um, there's like a line. And, and you, to get your kid's report card, you have to sign something. And then you move to the next person, and they're like trying to get you to sign permission slips so your kids can go on field trips. 
And at the very end of the line is the person that I'm going to call the PTO director. They actually call it GO at my school, but this is the parent-teacher organization. And um, the, the, putting them at the end is like a trap. And uh, they're like, hey, do you want to serve on the PTO committee? And I'm like, hey, do I want to eat glass and shave with rusty razor blades? No, I don't want to do that. Um, it's very unethical. It's like those suffering animal videos of Sarah McLaughlin where she sings in the arms of the angel and at the end there's like a three-legged puppy chocolate lab and they're like, do you want to donate money or do you want to kill this dog, you know? Um, and, and, and so, of course, you give the money and so I'm like, oh yeah, fine, I will sign up. So, um, and then I get a phone call to go to the PTO meeting and I'm like, oh gosh, they, they really made good on this. So I show up and it's me and like 13 stay-at-home moms, and that's cool. I'm judging all the other parents that aren't there that decided to murder puppies, secretly wishing I had their callousness and wasn't there. So we're having this meeting, and they decide to put a group of eight of us in charge of like eight different months of teacher appreciation. And so we each get a month. So we start spitballing, and the first, the first mom's like, well, I'm going to get them all $5 gift cards from Starbucks. I'm like, well, that's, you know, purchasing power is always appreciated. You know, I don't know if everybody likes coffee, but... It, it's better than some of the things that my wife brings home. She's a teacher. And then the second mom's like, I'm going to get a mug that says Teacher of the Year with Mickey Mouse and hearts. And I'm like, that's going straight in the trash. And then um, the, th the, third, the third person's like, I'm going to get every teacher a plant. I'm like, well, at least those die and they can throw them away. And so then I said, well, I'm going to get them all drunk. Um, and they're like, look at me. I said, that's right. I'm going to do a happy hour. I know what it's like working with your kids. So I did. I, uh, I hosted... Uh, a teacher happy hour in February of that year, and um, that was my gift to them. Uh, this, this, by the way, was right after I communicated that UBC would be a sponsor for the yearbook and divulged I was a pastor, so the timing was kind of poor. The optics weren't great, but um, I'll tell you what the moral of that story is. I never got asked to be on the PTO again. So, uh, there is one area of my life in which I can just be an absolute bulldog when confronted with a choice. I can draw a hard line and say no when money is involved. So uh, Lindsay and I, were when we were engaged, she, signed, she went to like a wedding trade show. I don't know if that's what those are called, um, you know, but they have all the stuff there. And she signed us up for this three-hour kitchenware presentation. And um, I said to her, why would anybody sign up for this? And she says, because allegedly they give you like a, a trip to Cancun. A thousand rolls of Fuji film. This is before iPhones, you know, disposable cameras. That you need that for your wedding, and um, and and some free knives. And I, I say, Lindsay, this is a bad idea. She's like, No, it's going to be great. So we go to this hotel in the Minneapolis area, and we're in a conference room of like the Holiday Inn. And um, there's three couples: some yuppies in their 20s that are clearly rich, um, some people in their 40s that are probably their second attempt at all of this. They're well established. Um, and then us, a future teacher and pastor with $50,000 of debt, no cars, and a future with nonprofit salaries that'll keep us just above the poverty line until our kids go to college. And since I'm homeschooled, we have like 30 of those. So we sit down and we get our two peer, pairing knives. Is that how you say that? Pairing knives? Yeah, we get that. They're good on that. And then we get a brochure for like a timeshare in Cancun. And then we get a thing. If you send it in, you get the film. So that's that. Uh, the salesman, though, he, he has sniffed me out. Um, and he, I might have even told him when I walked in, I'm not going to buy anything from you. Um, he wants to sell us a set of pots and pans for $1,000. And he looks at me and says, you might be surprised to know that 92% of people buy something from me. And in my head, I'm like, well, too big. Get ready to meet the other 8%. So um, 
So we sit through this thing, and it's a string of, of bad jokes, even by dad joke standards, and uh, so, some fear-inducing data about Teflon causing cancer, and eventually we get to eat some steamed carrots, and then he moves in to close the deal, and, and now I'm very excited to reject him because this is what I'm good at. And, um, you know, he, he asks us what, we, he, what he can put us down for, and after some hemming and hawing, I say, well, we're not interested. And then he winks at me, and he takes us out into the hallway, and he, he, away from the rich couples, and he looks at me and says, I can see that you're a bit destitute. And Lindsay's like, no, that's just the way he dresses. That's, um, uh, and then he says, well, money might, might be a little bit tight, though, right? And I'm like, oh, thank God, he understands. And he looks back in at the yuppies and the second stage of life people, and he says, don't let them tell you this, but I'm going to do you a deal. Pots and pans for $500. I'm like, no, man, I can't do that. He's like, okay, drive a hard bargain? Just the pots, $200. And I'm like, hey, man, I watched puppies die on TV and not even got up off the couch. You're not getting my money. So finally, he cuts the conversation off. He's very upset, and he walks away. And um, I can't tell you how good I felt inside. Uh, Six months later, I took like $150 of our wedding money and went to Kohl's on the Highway 6. I bought a set of pots and pans with Teflon in them, and we still got them all these years later, and we're fine. Uh, get some money involved, and I can say no. Uh, Lindsay says that I've watched too many episodes of DuckTales. Um, Uncle Scrooge has gotten to me. Uh, how about you? you? You good at making decisions? Are you decisive? Saw a meme this week, and it said I hadn't planned to get married, but then I realized I'd have to decide which restaurant to eat at every time we went out, so I said I do. Our decision is, is not so trivial. Is Jesus king? That's a different question than have you ever accepted Jesus in your heart or even um, are you a Christian? Those questions, by the way, didn't get asked with any kind of regularity until about the 18th century, you might say, when America had its first great awakening. Charles Finney and John Wesley popularized revivalism, and there was a kind of faction that broke out. The Reformed and Lutheran tradition accused the Baptists and Methodists of decision theology instead of opting in for their more sophisticated Calvinism, the belief that some lives matter. Or soteriologically speaking, it's God's game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo, off to heaven or hell you go. Uh, but really, Christ the King Sunday isn't about your decision for or against Christ. It's about allegiance. It's about what kind of world you're going to choose to live into. It's about whose political platform you're going to endorse. It's about what principles you believe actually govern the moral uh, fabric of the universe, and if they don't, if you're going to and abide by them anyways. Uh, this language about the kingdom of God, by the way, I think is, is very interesting. Um, it's a commitment to a certain kind of metaphor. Even in all of his divinity, Jesus is limited to the scope and the imagination of the language available to him at the time. And I had wondered why Jesus had picked kingdom. Um, I know he didn't, why he didn't pick empire. Rome had tried that, and that didn't uh, look very promising to most people. He didn't pick president because democracy didn't exist. And so I wondered what Jesus' options were. We have to be careful, though, with our metaphors. Uh, they can commit us and God to a certain kind of connotation. Richard Rohr expresses this concern when he says about Jesus, you know, the Italians made him Italian. The Swiss have made him Swiss, and the Americans have made him into a businessman, which is why we can elect an American businessman and think that he's a Christian. Kingdom of God. I wonder how many Muslims gave Jesus' word pause after the Crusades. I wonder what that image means to Meghan Markle today. Is Jesus king? Um, I've told you a story in the past about how as a park ranger and 
I would do these noontime walks, and there was this rabbi that would come, and he didn't like me very much, but that didn't stop me from talking to him. And um, the conversation I always rehearse is that one time I asked him about conversion to Judaism, and he said that in his tradition, they turn people away up to three different times before they consider letting them convert. I actually Googled that this week to see if it was true, and I think the truth of it is, is it depends on your rabbi. But what is true is that Judaism as a whole certainly gives much more pause to conversion than we do. There aren't seeker-sensitive synagogues to be found anywhere. I know I shouldn't reduce uh, religion to business, but I was a marketing major in college, and this got me thinking. You know, most businesses build their brands around mass appeal, easy access, low barriers to entry. Uh, they, they keep an eye uh, on cost with profit and affordability in mind. There are a whimsical few, though, whose strategy is almost completely opposite. They create high barriers of entry and exclusion. And what this does is build a kind of prestige around the product. And it's precisely those things that make the product desirable. Things like uh, three-star Michelin restaurants come to mind, Lamborghinis, fine art. There are also clubs, organizations, where membership is an issue that build themselves entirely around this. I Googled this. I didn't know any of this. But take the, the Ivy in London, for example. It's a collection of theater actors and producers and and writers, and the only way you can get into this um, really sought-after prestigious club is by invitation. Um, this kind of just complete lack of democracy is rare, though. Most of these clubs, with, for the right amount of money, you, you can get into them. The only one on the list that I was remotely interested in was Club 33 in Disneyland. It's a dining club that has been referred to as the Holy Grail for Disney enthusiasts. Um, it happens to be one of the best five-star restaurants in Orange County. Um, and its clientele includes presidents, dignitaries, and A-list celebrities like Tom Hanks. And if you want to join, you can, but the wait time is years. And allegedly, if you call in to check where you are in the process, they'll bump you off the list and put you at the end again. There are other forms of belonging that don't intend to be prestigious, are difficult, are unaffordable, but supply can't keep up with demand. In 2006... My sister-in-law called me, and um, she was a junior in college at the time. I was a full-time seminary student. My wife was a teacher in Texas. And so I think collectively we were pulling in about $35,000 a year between the three of us. And so um, she said, hey, do you want to go on the waiting list for Green Bay Packer tickets with me? Thinking if we ever got this chance, we're going to need all of our resources together. Because I said, sure, put me down. So um, I'd forgotten all about this. Um, and, and really, the point's moot now because she married a rich guy and they don't need her help at all. And we couldn't really get in anyways. But um, uh, I, I called her this week and I said, hey, did, did you actually put your name on? She said, yeah, that was 15 years ago. I said, where are we? She says, we got about another 15 years before we get called. We, uh, we get this taste of a kind of high barriers of entry strategy every year right here in Waco with Greek life. Every year, a bunch of, of freshmen rush, and then like one month later, there's a spike in, a, in the need for therapy here. Christianity does not operate this way. Perhaps the quintessential expression of, of our equal access entry is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember this? The eunuch is in a chariot or something, I don't know, a cart to whatever, Ben-Hur, think of that. And um, he's reading Isaiah. Philip's in there all of a sudden, and um, there's a conversation, and this, the question is, what's, what's keeping him from being baptized? Nothing. They go down to the river, he gets baptized. No catechism, no application, no need for church membership. Or think of Pentecost. 3,000 people in one day added to their numbers. How did they know what they were signing up for? 
But it's hard to conceive of Christianity taking any other approach. Sociologists tell me that 95% of those in the first century Roman Empire were far below our conception of the poverty line. And yet, as I was thinking about this, I can think of three reasons, probably more, why one might not want anything to do with the kingdom of God. Number one, I'm going to call this, it's not a very good deal. Um, I am mindful of all the stories in the New Testament where Jesus is very candid and people walk away. John 6 says that he gave his disciples a hard teaching and they began to turn away from him. Or I think about Matthew 16 where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it and vice versa. And really just think through Christian history. You can pick your martyrdom story, Perpetua, MLK, Maximus the Confessor. Take what Jesus says to heart, really begin to implement this, stand up to power, and you're probably going to end up dead. Or this is the uh, second reason I I thought about why you might not want to embrace the kingdom of God. I'm calling this, we'd rather be king of queen ourselves. Uh, I told you this story, but it's worth repeating. In the 1960s, farmer Leonard Castley grew way too much wheat in Australia, Australia had wheat quotas at the time, which had been surpassed, so legally Castley couldn't sell his wheat in the Hutt River, his province. So a group of Hutt River residents decided to petition this for the quota to be, to be raised, and the governor said no, and what's more, the governor said, if you try and sell your wheat, I will, um, I will confiscate your land. So the five families of Hutt secede from Australia under the Treason Act of 1495. Uh, And their thinking was this is at least going to put it in courts. It'll delay everything. It'll buy us some time and a window. The Australian government then makes a huge mistake. They refer to Castley as the administrator of Hutt River Province in an official correspondence, which legally gave him recognition under Australian law. In response, Castley then declares himself His Majesty, Prince Leonard I of Hutt, The reason this matters is because now it would be treason under an Australian law for him to be charged with any crime or interfere with how he ran with his own country. Now, you're probably thinking, can't Australia just stop this? Yes, they could have if they had gotten around to read the Statute of Limitations, which ran out, but no one bothered to read the rules of the Treason Act of 1495. So in 1972, the Principality of the Hutt River officially seceded and has since stopped paying income taxes to Australia. Probably a dangerous story to tell a bunch of Texans, but that's what it is. Um, we, do all want, we do all want our own kingdoms, whether we admit it or not. Uh, I think the story that might be the hardest for us as Americans is not the call to lose your life. Uh, people are willing to die for a lot of things. Uh, how many of you uh, watch the Squid Games? Ooh, Okay. We'll do some work on discipleship and censoring something. Uh, People will die for money. I know it's fiction, but it's not unbelievable. Uh, We, the country, are a country that has over 600 billionaires, a group whose collective wealth has grown by a half a trillion dollars in just four short years since 2017. Um, And so I think our most challenging text might be the rich young ruler. Uh, here you have an individual who got all of the rules right, was given a, an Excel spreadsheet with everything you can and can't do, and Jesus flipped the script on him and said, that's great, but what I really needed for you to do is give everything you have and follow me. Here's the third, and I think probably the biggest rub. And this is why we have the Sunday in the church calendar. We can't agree on what the nature of the kingdom is. 
They say that pictures are worth a thousand words. So I'm going to show you two pictures that present, I think, Christ as king. Two very different visions for the nature of Jesus' kingdom. The first is from John McNaughton. It's called Religion and Politics. And here's Jesus surrounded by all the great American presidents. You have the Capitol building in the background. You have other architecture from around D.C. You have um, soldiers standing around Jesus. It's a really star-spangled, awesome picture that endorses America, a country for which we all reside in and, and I'm nonetheless grateful for. Here's a second picture. It's by Lars Justinian. I've showed you this over the years. It's dated a little bit. It's called Servant to the Nations. You can tell it's dated because there is then President George W. Bush um, seated down the end is Angela Merkel, who just stepped down, Tony Blair, a couple other figures, but most controversially in the middle is Osama bin Laden getting his feet washed. These represent two very different ways to be a kingdom person in the world, and you have to make that choice. You have to decide, uh, will you let the images and the stories that you have heard all year, the way we rehearsed the story of Jesus together, inform the nature of the kingdom? And, and if so, do you want to be a part of that kingdom? And who is Jesus? Let's remind ourselves, Jesus is one who sat by the, the Samaritan woman at the well, he offered dignity to a woman and reversed racist scripts. Jesus is one who draws in the sand to distract religious people from murdering the financially desperate. Jesus is one who heals, and so he offers health care indiscriminately. Jesus fled Israel for his life as a baby, so he has a history as an immigrant. Jesus is one who turns water into wine, and so he is one who celebrates. Jesus is one who picks the economically disadvantaged fisherman, the trader tax collector, and the criminal religious zealot to be on the same team and drive us mad, but nonetheless is an equal opportunity employer. Jesus invites the little children to him, so he's one who values those who can't contribute. Jesus goes to funerals and raises the dead, but before he does that, he weeps with those who mourn, and in so he expresses the truth that our feelings matter. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house for lunch, talks to him, talks him into repentance and restoration because Jesus is one who believes the rich and the powerful can be redeemed too. So what do you think? What kind of kingdom does this Jesus make for? I did a wedding here last night and I began uh, the, the homily with a Stanley Harawas quote that I've used often. And this is what Harawas says. He says that you can't possibly know what you mean when you say your wedding vows. We say those vows and then we learn to live into them and we commit to a space where that change can unfurl and we can adapt and grow into. I like that both because it's honest, um, but also because I think it's descriptive of most commitments that we make. You can't possibly have known what it was going to mean for you to be a Christian when you decided to become one. You are still unfinished. You are still working through that. You don't believe what you believed 10 years ago and hopefully your worldview has evolved to take Jesus more seriously and hear the hard things that Jesus says to us. And part of the sanctifying process that we commit to with the church calendar is to slow down and ask ourselves at least once a year if you're still interested in the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. I'm not talking about the soul-saving salvation that keeps us from hell. You can have that. That's done. You got it. Don't worry about it. But if we were to recast the question from what were you saved from to what were you saved for, then what kind of kingdom do you encounter? So my question this morning is very simple. Is Jesus in fact king?
UBC, may we be a people who sit down at the well with the wrong people. May we enter this space of the demonic and the outcast and offer healing. May we move out of Israel and into Egypt with the refugees. May we wash the feet of our enemies. May we celebrate goodness and beauty at wild parties with lots of wine. And may we declare that Christ is King. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, um, we pause to, uh, to acknowledge the question about Jesus' kingship in our own lives. And um, I pray this week that we would be permeated by the beautiful and the tender things that you say and do in the scriptures, that we would be challenged, that we would be undone and we would be put back together again. I pray that truth and beauty and goodness and mercy would, um, would reign in our lives and that your spirit would map us onto the trajectory of Jesus' kingdom so that we look like Jesus' kingdom people. We ask this confidently with hope because of who you are and what you've done, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, we would like to take time and sit in silence and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit together. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. So let's listen.